Well, good morning. It is great to be uh, with you today, and uh, thanks for uh, being part of our services. Uh, there are a lot of people that are maybe in town on vacations, and there also might be some people out of town on vacation, and one of those people out of town on vacation is Pastor Jim. So he sends his regards. A few weeks ago, he, uh, we've been teasing him. He's taken a little more vacation on Sundays than he often does, but he, uh, uh, it's his 40th anniversary later this summer, so we decided we'd give him a, a pass for that. And a couple weeks ago, he was away with Sandy on a trip, just the two of them. This week, uh, he's away with his two daughters and their families and uh, was able to get, this was the one time in the summer they could find uh, a week away. So uh, he sends, he actually texted with me this morning, he sends his greetings from where they're at. He'll be back with us next week, and we'll be continuing our series uh, in Mark. Then, if I haven't met you, I'm Pastor Carter McDaniel. I'm the executive pastor here. I work on the day-to-day operations uh, of things here at Central with Pastor Jim, and I also apparently this summer preach when he's on vacation. So I have great news for everybody. I think this is the last one of the summer, so (laughs) good news for me too. Uh, But if you turn with me today, we're going to continue our series in the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verse uh, 35. Uh, We also have message notes available on Uversion. You can find a link to those on our website uh, if you like to use uh, your phone instead of a copy of the scriptures. However you want to get there, get there today. And uh, as we start to look at this text, one of the things that I have enjoyed about this series and that I enjoy kind of any time I dig in to the Gospels uh, is the way that the Gospels present the disciples. Uh, it's easy for me at times to think I need to put these guys on a pedestal, right? There are some kind of, you know, superhuman mega Christian guys that Jesus handpicked because of their capacity uh, to carry his word forward and to understand his teachings and, and to kind of, you know, be what he builds his church on. He had to pick them for a reason. It must be that they're incredible. And then when you kind of dig into the Gospels, you see they're pretty normal. They're pretty normal just like us. They've got issues Uh, And, in fact, the Gospels at times don't even really present them looking very good. And that's one of the things some scholars say is is evidence that the Gospels are not a lie is that you wouldn't make some of this stuff up. It's it's so, so, you know, you wouldn't say, I want the foundation of this, uh, you know, the idea of Jesus' work to be built on some of these guys. But nevertheless, that's what the accounts say. You know, we see some, a lot of examples of that, probably too many to list uh, today, but you know, first thing right out of the shoot, early when he called them, they're impulsive. Uh, James and John, when when Jesus called them, it says they left their dad and everyone else in the boat. They just got out of the boat and left. It doesn't even indicate that they made any arrangements. They just walked away. Peter and Andrew were similar. They left their nets at best on the shore, possibly in the water when Jesus called them. We see that impulsiveness kind of carry through the story. Uh, at one point, James and John. Uh, are in a town, a Samaritan town, that won't let Jesus stay there, and they get, they get pretty fired up, and they say, I've got a great idea, Jesus. Let's call down fire from heaven. That'll show them, and no one will tell us to leave after that. You know, and Jesus had to be like, no, that's not what we're going to do. In fact, Jesus had to rebuke them like that from time to time. Uh, there was a time when they were out. Again, Peter, Peter uh, James, and John were out, and uh, they found somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name, ministering to people in Jesus' name, and they said, well, we've got to put a stop to this. So they told him, you had to stop, that you're not part of the group. We've got 12 of us that are the actual disciples, and you guys need to stop. They came back and told Jesus, hey, Jesus, great news, we put a stop to this. And Jesus, I just imagine Jesus shaking his head going, no, that's what we want people to do, you know. Uh, one of my, they, they sometimes get rebuked for their lack of faith. We saw that a few weeks ago. Uh, they, they are having uh, trouble casting a demon out of a young boy, and Jesus came and did it. But in the process, speaking directly to the t- disciples, he said, you're a faithless generation. And there's other times we see 
their lack of faith where they can't, uh, you know, follow what, uh, understand what Jesus is trying to do in the world. One of my favorite examples of that is feeding of the crowds, right? We talked about that earlier, the feeding of the 5,000. There's a, gra- a crowd of 5,000. This is in Mark chapter 6. And the people are hungry, and Jesus says, well, we better feed them. And the disciples kind of throw up their hands and say, well, how are we going to do that? And uh, Jesus says, well, gather what you have. And Jesus blessed it, and, and it multiplied, and everybody got something to eat, and they had 12 baskets uh, left over. Well, then just two chapters later, almost exactly the same thing happens in Mark 8. There's a big crowd. This time, only 4,000, so, so less than uh, even they had to deal with the first time. And the same thing. They're, Jesus says, we're going to send them away, but we can't send them away hungry, uh, so we better feed them. And then the disciples throw up their hands and go, well, how are we going to do that? And Jesus, I imagine again, Jesus shakes going, maybe, I don't know, the same way we did it last time? Like, let's see, let's see what we have. And it's like they just couldn't repeatedly get in their mind kind of how things were working. Uh, they also didn't always understand Jesus' teachings. We see a lot of that, and that works out good for us because Jesus had to explain a lot of parables to them, so we get the benefit of that explanation. But lest we think that's just a literary tool that the gospel writers were using, in Mark chapter 7, uh, after Jesus had explained his teaching on ritual, ritualistic cleansing three times to them, once to the Pharisees, once to the crowd, and once to them directly, uh, they still don't get it. And Jesus finally just says, are you so dull? He literally is saying, like, you guys are not the sharpest knives in the drawer, <laughs> right? <laughs> are you so dull? So we see all these, ev- these examples, and we could, just, we could spend the whole time today listing those out where the disciples are humans just like us. They have weaknesses, they have flaws, just like us. And Jesus calls them and uses them in spite of those weaknesses and flaws, just like us. The same way that he calls us in spite of what we have going on in us, in spite of the flaws and the weaknesses we have. And he calls them to something beyond their weaknesses. He helps them address those weaknesses. It's one of those weaknesses that they have that we're going to look at today, and I think it's one that we probably all can experience from time to time. So let's take a look. Uh, at Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Mark says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that's Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. So here's what's going on. We can kind of imagine the scene here. Jesus is... is somehow kind of alone with these disciples, uh, James and John, they come to him semi-privately and just say, we got an idea, we want to sit next to you in your glory. And it's, uh, it's interesting the timing of this request. It's basically like they're saying, we want the good seats. We want to literally be your right-hand guy. And if we really dig into the context, it's not that they, uh, it's not that they uh, want to you know, help Jesus even more. We want to be close to you so we can help you. If you go back a couple of verses, just in verse 33, Jesus says, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So Jesus has just said he's going to die. And I think this is the thought process that James and John have. If Jesus might die, who's going to be in charge when Jesus is gone? we would be great at being in charge. Let's ask him if that can be us. So they go to him and they ask him that. 
And he basically, we'll unpack it more a little later, he just kind of shakes his head and goes, you guys don't even know what's going on. You don't even understand what's happening here. You guys have it all wrong. He says, even if you did understand it, I can't even give you those positions, but you've got it all wrong. But I think uh, that, that's a temptation we have, right? We all want to kind of find position and prominence. I think sometimes we even like ask Jesus for that. Like we want this thing that, that we ask of Jesus. It's funny too when he, he goes back to the, the other 10 disciples get wind of this and they are not happy. Uh, verse 41 says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And this is interesting too. It's easy to think you'd be like, can you believe those guys would, would think that? Why are they, you know, why, what's up with them? What the disciples are actually indignant about is that James and John had the idea first. <laughs> if you look back at chapter 9, this, it, almost the same thing happens where Jesus tells about his own death. He foretells it almost the same way. And then they set out on a road trip. And the entire road trip, the disciples kind of lag behind Jesus. And it says they argued, a full-fledged a full argument about who among them was the greatest. Then they get where they're going, and Jesus goes, hey, what were you guys arguing about? None of them wanted to say. I think Jesus knew. But, but they argued about who would be greatest, and it's the same kind of a thing that they all think they could be the one that takes over this group for Jesus when Jesus you know, departs the scene. And they're all on this kind of quest for power. And Jesus had addressed it in verse 9, and he feels the need to address it even more uh, here in chapter 10. So he says he called them together, the, called all the disciples, not the crowd, the disciples together. And he said this, he said, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Jesus is kind of saying here is, I see what you guys are up to. I see that you want this prominence and you want this power and you want this position and you want recognition and you want respect and you want all of these things. If you really want that, we turn it on our head and you become a servant. In the process of this, Jesus kind of turns upside down the power structures and everything that we see and that we think about to be true and normal. And this is part of what Eugene Peterson calls in the message paraphrase, the great reversal, right? The last will be first, the first will be last. We saw an example of this same kind of turn it on its head last week that Pastor Jim shared about that, you know, if you, if you give up everything, you'll get it back a hundredfold. But if you try and hang on to it, the more you try and keep it, the more of a sure thing it is that you're going to lose it. And then today we see if you seek out greatness through power, you're not going to find that but you find it by serving, by serving others. And that's a really complicated thing about it. It's easy to kind of say those words, but to unpack how do we do that? How do we lead and achieve greatness through service? I think Jesus gives us kind of four clues in this passage that we can take a look at. Uh, that will be a window into how we can kind of tangibly do that. Uh, the first one is uh, that we should respect others. Um, verse 30, uh, verse Verse 42 says, Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And I think we've all experienced or seen this kind of leadership, right? I think everyone who's in a leadership position from time to time has to navigate this temptation. You feel like you're in this position of leadership 
and now people need to respect me because I'm, I'm here in this role. And if they don't respect me, I'm going to wield power. Scripture says I'm going to exercise my authority, like put, in, put, put action behind the authority that I have and show people that they're going to respect me. And I think a lot of times when we see that happen, it's coming from a deep-seated need that we have to you know, feel loved and respected and honored. And what we do when we lead that way is we are using people to feel better about uh, ourselves, to derive some self-esteem from comparing ourselves to others. And Jesus calls that out, and he says, not so with you. And he's not saying, like, pat him on the back, good job, you guys don't do this, we're not that way. It's an uh, it's a imperative statement. We're not going to do this in our team. This is not how we're going to be. We're not going to wield our power. We're not going to lord authority over people. So this this thing that they want to do, they basically are asking this question because they want to put the, put the Gentiles under their thumb when Jesus establishes what they think will be his earthly rule. He's saying, even if we were going to do that, we're not going to do it that way. That's not the leadership that we, we want to have. And I think all of us who are in leadership positions have to really guard our hearts against that. I think it's a really normal thing. I think that's why it came up three different times with the disciples and Jesus had to address it. But for all of us that have to guard against that, uh, probably even more of us have experienced that, right? Uh, we think about a boss that's bad, that's demanding, that's demeaning. Uh, I bet as I look across this room, probably almost everyone in here has experienced some form of bad leadership. And if you haven't, your day is probably coming. You know, it's, we live in a fallen world, right? And even leaders who do their very best to, to not be this way. Pastor Jim told a story, you know, we talk about work, but it can happen in the education setting, too. He told a story last week about a professor that was pretty, uh, pretty rude to him, uh, an advisor in an academic setting. We've experienced, you know, teachers that are cruel. Sometimes it might be for you a coach that's been harsh, uh, that's, you know, said things that were demeaning. It might be a friend that stabbed you in the back, you feel like. Uh, and it could even be a church leader. Um, you know, we try pretty hard here to guard ourselves and not lead that way. Pastor Jim challenges us about this every week. Uh, we want it not so with us here at Central, but uh, there's probably times we haven't always gotten that right, and if you look around culture, there's just more examples than we even would like to admit of church leaders who have used their authority in an abusive way and that have harmed people in the process. And if you're here today and you've experienced that, I, I have at various times in different settings in my own life, if that's you today, uh, first I want to say I'm sorry. You, you, don't, you don't deserve to be uh, treated that way. That's not what Jesus said to do, particularly if it is uh, a church hurt situation where uh, you've been hurt by someone in leadership at church or in, in other Christian settings. Uh, that's not what Jesus teaches us to do. But the second thing is I would want to remind you exactly that, that uh, if you've been hurt at church, uh, that was not Jesus that hurt you, it was a person. And it's so easy for us to see the people and the leaders that lead organizations as the mouthpiece for the organization or the things that they lead. And I think in the church that's doubly complicated because Jesus has used, uses you know, fallible humans to carry his infallible message. So that doesn't always work out exactly the best. But if somebody hurt you in a church setting, not only was it not Jesus, they are, they are working against what Jesus teaches in this passage. So we can see that they were wrong. They were not right 
uh, to do the thing that they did that, that hurt you. And the last thing I would just say is I think sometimes we feel, when we feel emotional hurt, we feel like we just need to plow through it. We need to put our head down, you know, and, and you know, we were told, we were taught we should forgive, so we forgive and we move on and, and we just put our head down and try and act like nothing happened. But guess what? The, the hurt and the injury is still there. If you twist your ankle, you don't go right back out to the basketball court and start playing basketball. You allow yourself time to rest, to let, that, let those ligaments kind of reattach and heal, and then you ease back into things. And we don't always give ourselves to do, freedom to do that when it's an emotional hurt. But I'd submit to you today that if you're feeling emotional hurt, that's exactly what we need to do. I, I like the words of Pastor John Stark. He's a pastor in New York City that wrote an article called When Healing Takes Time. And he says, too often I move on quickly when others cause pain. I'm not honest about the inner stew of bitterness and anger that's cooking. I leave pain where it is. I put a pillow over top so no one sees it and I can forget about it since I don't have time for it, nor I assume is it worthy of my time. But what human experience and the Psalms show over and over again is that forgiveness and healing are difficult and costly. We know we should forgive, but our hearts don't run as fast as our intellect since they carry our heavy baggage. And so it takes more time and patience, more care and reflections. The Psalms teach us that we have little control over our emotions, but what matters most is where we take them. What our pain and rejection need is time. Time to lament, time to plead, time for help, time to repent. We need time to heal. And I think sometimes we don't allow that, but I just encourage you today, if you're experiencing that, there is no no fault in saying, I need to rest for a minute. Lord, I need to rest, I need to heal up, and I'm going to get back uh, in the game, so to speak, once I get healed up. So if that's you today, give yourself that permission and that freedom. Uh, we're talking about some other things that we can do, but let's make sure we're healed up. Before we do that, when we come back, let's make sure that we respect all of the people around us. Uh, another thing I think we can pick up from this passage, uh, from this passage of a way we can kind of tangibly serve others is to uh, use some elbow grease. That might be a funny one, uh, but it means we have to go to work. We actually have to do some work. Uh, we see that in the words that Jesus chooses. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The, the two words here that are kind of doing the heavy lifting are servant and slave, right? And those two words, both in the Greek, connotate activity. It's not, I'm giving from afar, I'm not applying resources to a thing, I'm not directing activity, it's literally I'm rolling up my sleeves. The word, uh, and getting in there and working, the word Uh, For servant there is diakonos, it's where we get our word deacon, it's associated with being a minister, not a clergy member kind of minister, but like a nurse that ministers aid to someone. And it's literally about attending to the personal needs of another person. So to be able to do that, you have to use your hands, you have to kind of know what they need, and then you have to get in there and use your hands and do it. The other word uh, for slave is doulos, and it is uh, literally a male domestic servant. So it's literally the guys that do the heavy lifting around the house. It's the guys that, that make stuff happen and get done. So for us to effectively serve, we can't just have good intentions about it. We actually have to roll up our sleeves and do, do some work. I look across this room, and I see lots of people that I know are doing that. I know you're doing it here at Central. I know that you're doing it outside of these walls. I know you're doing it in other uh, areas of ministry that you're involved with, some of them even in secular workplaces and things, and that's good, and we affirm that, and that's what Jesus says we need to do to attain greatness by 
by serving. But I also know that there's some people in this room who probably have done that in the past, but they're not doing it right now. Or there's, you're doing a little bit, but you could probably do more, and the Lord might have been uh, dealing with you about that. And that's important to us here. You know, here at Central, we, we make our ministries go because, because people come alongside and volunteer and work. You know, this is, the staff does not do most of the work of the ministry here. Our, we see our role is to, you know, equip people to do the work of the ministry. And uh, this week, we've got tons of places where people can serve. Already today, you know, the, the greeters that greeted you when, when you came in, uh, they're not paid. They're, they're volunteering. The worship team that led us this morning is volunteers that are rolling up their sleeves and using elbow grease. Uh, this morning, if you drank coffee, one guy came in here at 6 a.m. and made coffee so that we could all have it today. Uh, I see Greg Johns over here. Greg, I know you taught at 9 o'clock today with the kids. I know there's several others of you in this room uh, that have done that. But here's what I also know. Uh, if I'm just being transparent about where we're at as a church, as we've come back from COVID, we've had, uh, we're doing well. We've had our financial, we've had some great financial years post-COVID. We've, our attendance is coming back. We're ahead of where uh, we would have projected, I think we would have been in every area except volunteering. Uh, every area except volunteering has come back pretty strong. And I think something has happened to us in the pandemic where uh, we wanted to have some time to rest, and that was good, and, and we all needed that. I, I heard somebody say this week, uh, people, would, people would give a preference to going back to some of the closed footing we had during the pandemic. If they were, you know, if when asked in a survey, a majority of people liked slowing down some, and that's good. But I think we have to guard against valuing that rest so much that we don't roll up our sleeves and do the work that God's called us to do. Because God did not call us to just sit on the sidelines and receive. He called us to do this, to use elbow grease, to be, to be a domestic, you know, to do the heavy lifting around his house and do the work that he needs to do. So if you're interested in being part of that here, we've got tons of opportunities. I mentioned some this past week uh, when I was leaving my office on Tuesday. We host a food pantry on Tuesday with Victory Mission that happens outside under our under our awning on Campbell. It was lined up all the way around Calhoun Street on the Boonville. They had plenty of help. They had some help, but they could use some more. Uh, we've got some school initiatives coming up this fall that the lid on those are going to be how many people will be involved in them with us. So if you're interested in learning about all those opportunities and finding a place to serve, the easiest way to do that here is to attend our serve class. I love our serve class. We use Gallup Strength Finder to kind of find out a little bit about how God has wired you up to work what giftings you have, then we talk about the passions and what you're feeling the Lord leading in, leading in you, and then we use those to kind of help guide where we'll find some opportunities for you to try serving. We do that about once a month. Uh, the next one's coming up on the 30th. It's during the 1045 service, so you can just duck right over there to, to room 123. It's easy, and we'd love to see uh, some of you there. But we have to, to effectively serve. We have to roll up our sleeves and use, use some elbow grease. <clears throat> when we do that, oftentimes the work that we do will require us to be humble, right? It's easy when you're in leadership to think, well, maybe that works beneath me. I don't want to do that work. But to actually put elbow grease into something, a lot of times we have to be humble. And it's also funny to me, I don't think you ever get to a place where you're like, well, I am sufficiently humble, because that, now you're no longer humble, right? <laughs> so this is an ongoing journey of deepening our, our humility. Tim Keller says it well, in an article uh, called Your Main Problem Isn't Other People. It's an adaptation of a commentary he wrote on Galatians 6. But he says it this way, you're never going to live this kind of servant life. It's exactly what we're talking about today, the servant life. He says you're never going to move out into relationships really trying to serve others rather than trying to use others to build up your self-image. You can't do those things unless there's a deep humility in you. 
And that's a challenge for us because it's got to always be, you know, I said deepen your humility is the word. We always have to struggle to kind of let that humility go deeper and get more embedded in our heart and who we are. We see Jesus model that really well uh, in this passage. He, <coughs> excuse me, he, uh, he says at the end of verse 45 that even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And it's an interesting word choice there. He, he calls himself the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a really interesting title. Jesus uses it pretty frequently to refer to himself. I think 13 other times in the book of Mark does he say Son of Man referring to himself. And that's a, so it has a deep meaning for the disciples, for the Jewish audience there, because it goes back to Daniel chapter 7. That's prophetic about the Messiah. It shows up some other places in the Old Testament. So when he says Son of Man, He's kind of using one title to invoke his humanity, his identity as the Messiah, his divine authority, his redemptive mission in the world. It's kind of a lot of meaning packed into one title. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's actually kind of half playing the positional authority card. He's saying to them, I got the best title of all. I'm the son of man. You guys aren't trying to be me. You're trying to be, you know, nipping at my coattails. That's what you're trying to do. I've got the best title of anyone in this room and anybody. And then he says, but even I didn't come to be served. I didn't come for you to serve me. I didn't put this group together so that you can work for me. I came to serve you. I came to serve others. So he's showing a very, a very humble posture toward other people. He also shows a humble posture toward the Lord. Back in verse 40, uh, he says, when he says, these seats that you want, they're not mine to give. Uh, says in the text, they're for whom they've been prepared. Another way you could think about that is God's already chosen the people for those. That's God the Father's choice to make, and I'm staying out of that because I'm, I'm humble in my relationship to others. I'm humble in my relationship to the Lord. If we look at Jesus' posture toward others is one of serving. His posture toward God the Father is one that's yielded. And that's actually the last thing I think we see in this passage uh, is that we have to yield our will. Jesus kind of roadmaps that in that response, but we also see that uh, at the very, the very beginning of this passage. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I think that's a really interesting statement. Uh, I kind of want to chuckle at it. I want to go, you know, they're, they're basically asking Jesus if he'll do whatever they want, except they're not even asking. They're telling him. They're saying, hey, we want you to do whatever, whatever we ask. And part of me reads that, and I'm like, I can't believe the goal that they would have. I mean, they must be really courageous to stand in front of Jesus and say, we want you to do whatever we ask. But then if I'm really honest with myself, I've done the same thing, right? And before you kind of turn your head up at me, I bet you've prayed that prayer too, Right? I think it's really easy for us to sometimes pray and say, uh, God, I've got a great plan. <laughs> I've got this really good plan. I've really thought this one out. You're going to love it. And here it is. I can do this part, so I'm already doing that, but here's the stuff I can't do. Here's the list, and I just need you to do those things, and if you do those things, my plan, you're going to love my plan so much it's going to work so well. I think, that's, I think we inadvertently do that a lot. That's the way we, our prayers are a list of demands that will serve our plan. And, and then I think we pat ourselves on the back and go, look how yielded I am because I ask God to do these things that I can't do by myself, you know. Look at, look at me. 
Uh, and the disciples are doing that here, and they're saying, you know, we've got a great plan, and here's what we need you to do. But we're exactly backwards when we do that, right? We're not, that's not us, that's us saying, hey, God, would you, would you kind of step in line and submit to my will? <laughs> and what Jesus is asking of us is, will we submit to his will for us? We, we, but we have a tendency, even those of us with the best, I mean, I've done this. Uh, I think it's fascinating what Jesus says back to him when they ask this. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. And that's an interesting statement. But again, I think if I'm honest, I've probably, I've not probably, I've heard that answer. I didn't recognize it uh, when I heard it. But sometimes I think we get our plan and we ask for all these things and then Jesus doesn't do them. We don't see those prayers being answered the way we want them to be. And we think, uh, we think, wow, you know, God must not care about me, or we, we get upset with the Lord about that. And I think sometimes in those moments, what the Lord is really saying is, I've got such a better plan than this that you don't even know what you're asking. If I did these things that you have laid out here, I could do those, sure, and your plan would be, you know, what it is. But I see the end, and I see how your plan would end, and I see how my plan ends, and my plan is better, so I'm not going to do these things for you. I think what the Lord says back. Uh, I didn't plan to tell this story today, but I'll tell, uh, I told it in first, in first service. I feel the need to say it again. I, one of the times I experienced this personally was kind of in uh, late in college. I, I had planned, I think you mentioned I've, I've got a math degree, and my plan, I had a good plan. I had a really good plan back in college, and it was to be uh, a math professor. I was going to study graduate math, uh, liked uh, kind of this theoretical research algebra stuff that was pretty weird. And uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I had some ability in it. So I was in the process my senior year of applying to grad schools and trying to get assistantships lined up and things. And that was my plan. And uh, I'd been plowing on that pretty hard for a few years. And that last semester of my, my senior year, I developed an epilepsy disorder that was related to a car accident I had uh, three years earlier. Thought I'd recovered from it and was fine and then developed this seizure disorder. And then the treatment for the seizures uh, did not go well. So I ended up having to drop out of all of my classes my last semester. And uh, then here's the, the shocking news of the day. Graduate school won't let you in if you don't graduate. <laughs> so, so my entire plan kind of just evaporates in uh, about a four-month period uh, when I was, you know, 21, 22, you know, clearly mature enough to handle that, right? Uh, but I remember praying, like, so diligently to the point where I got almost depressed about it. Lord, take these things away. Like, why are you doing this to me? Take these things away. And it just didn't happen. In fact, early on, it was like, the seizures came back, I was sick. I mean, it was really a complicated moment. I actually had to navigate through a pretty gnarly season of depression as a result of that. Um, but in the process, I kind of fell back on my audio engineering hobby, and I became a touring audio engineer. I traveled in a, sounds really cool to say I'm a touring audio engineer. It means you ride in a small van and do, you know, I, we were not big time, the group I was with. But I went all around the country doing audio. I was a sound guy. And that's a pretty far fall to go from I'm going to do research algebra at the PhD level to I'm a sound guy. And, uh, but I ended up here. 
because of that. Because in 2005, we were building the activity center. I'd maintain a connection with Pastor Tom and Pastor Jim, loved this church even when I was gone. And uh, they were creating, they needed some help to get tech systems in order for some of those building projects and some other things that needed to be addressed in this room. So they offered me a job that I thought would be a year. At the very most, it'd be 18 months. I said, Lord, this is so good. Puts me squarely back in Springfield. Can kind of finish my academic stuff. I can get back applied to Missouri State. I can get started, you know, on this plan that I had. And uh, I thought, you know, 18 months would be plenty of time for that, get my graduate admission, you know, and then then get back on the track that I thought I was going to be on. Well, that was 18 and a half years ago, and I've never left. (laughs) So, and... I remember, again, being so kind of frustrated at times with, you know, the Lord not answering the way I wanted him to answer. But what I couldn't see is all the stuff that's happened between us. That doesn't mean it's always been easy. But I had no way to see this from that vantage point. And the Lord had something else for me that he had to temper me for, that he had to bring me through, that he had to work on. He said to me, every time I pray those prayers, he said, you don't even know what you're asking. And I look back finally now and I can say, I'm so glad he didn't answer those prayers. You didn't even, I didn't even know what I was asking. He says that to the disciples this time because they don't, they don't understand what's going on. They still are thinking, you know, in terms of he's setting up an earthly kingdom, right? So he asks them some more questions. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And he means that the cup is an Old Testament concept of the cup of the Lord's wrath. It's like the weight of all the sin that he's going to have to carry on the cross. And the baptism he's going to be baptized in is death. He's going to, you know, to rise from the dead, you have to die first. So he's got to, he's got to be immersed into death before he, can, before he can rise victorious. Well, they're still thinking the wrong way. They think he's thinking about, like, the cup of the head table at a party. They're like, yeah, we can drink that. And they think he's talking about, you know, the baptism is like his coronation as a king. And they're like, yeah, we can do all that. And then he says something interesting. He says to them, he gets prophetic. He says, yeah, you you will drink that cup. And you will be baptized in that baptism. And it's interesting. uh, Again, I don't think they had any idea what it meant. It's a sign to us, too. It's not always going to be easy. God's plan is not always easy. And if you look at history, in Acts chapter 12, it says that uh, James is the first disciple to be martyred. He was arrested by Herod Agrippa at the request of the Jews. It says he was put to death by the sword, uh, which most scholars say means his head was removed. And John's kind of the other end of the, the spectrum. He's the only disciple besides Judas who wasn't a martyr. He lived into old age. Uh, which some would say being the last one is kind of a heavy weight to bury on its own, but there's no indication, while scripture's a little silent about what happened to him along the way, uh, history through Tertullian would tell us that he was boiled in oil uh, in front of a crowd, didn't die, and then this part's for sure, he was sent to prison in their version of kind of Alcatraz Island, the Isle of Patmos, a prison that you really couldn't get away from, he was there for at least a year and a half, some people would say four years or more, and uh, so life was not easy for these guys. And but I, I think when I look at that, I know how it ends. I know they drink the cup and are baptized, baptized in that baptism. How do you go from the pettiness of worrying about position and who's in charge to martyrdom, right? Like this is like a huge, feels like there's a huge gap between where they're at, you know, spiritually and mentally 
in this part of Mark and the end of Mark and in Acts and later. And I think the way that that happens is uh, they experience what the end of verse 45 says. Uh, It says, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom there is kind of doing a lot of work. And when I dug into that word, that's a Greek word that's called, that's lutron. And I have to be careful. I, I learned most of my Greek in calculus, but I've, I've read some really good people about this. Uh, but the word lutron, every, in biblical times, every slave had a price that existed that would buy their freedom. And if you think about it, if you think of slaves as property, that's terrible. We're, we don't want to think of people that way. But if you did, you know, it's kind of that idea, well, everything has its price. You know, everything's for sale if, if the price is right. So for every slave that existed, there was some number that would buy their freedom. And that was the lutron. So it's actually translated pretty well as ransom. The lutron is what buys their freedom. So, but here's the complicated thing. The lutron, it would be a big number and they're a slave. So a slave would never, it's an insurmountable burden for a slave to buy, to pay this lutron. So if a lutron was being paid for a slave, somebody else had to pay it, right? Makes sense, somebody else had to pay that because they can't pay it on their own. The person paying the lutron wouldn't really get anything in return. It's not like he's buying possession of the slave and now I own them, but then I'm going to set them free and hope they're loyal to me. No, the Lutron was effectively almost paid to the slave so the slave could pay it to the slaveholder so that the slave could just go into freedom. And the person paying it didn't have any expectation of return uh, on that transaction. And meanwhile, if somebody paid your Lutron, you're free, you still have to take a step to leave. Like you could choose to live in bondage and retain your slavery, keep working for the same people, live in the same place, do all the stuff. You're just, the price has been paid for you, but you have to take a step to exercise that freedom that you have been given. So Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay the Lutron. I'm going to pay the price for your enslavement. We're all trapped in our sin, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. We are sinners. We can't help it. It's who we are. It's deep in us, and we're stuck without Jesus paying that Lutron. And when he pays it, we still have to take a step. He's paid it for many. He paid it for everybody is is kind of the implication of this. We still have to step out into that and receive that payment and receive the freedom that comes with it. Well, John and James had a, a front row seat to this. Literally, John... Jesus talked to them on the cross. They watched this go down. And I think experiencing that and seeing it firsthand changed the way they thought about everything. And let's think about that. That should be the case for us too. If I'm bound to my sin and I can't get out on my own, when someone frees me, they're not demanding that I follow them and do what they say, but how can I not want to yield my will to what Jesus wants to do in me? How can I not live with humility and respect others in the process? And how can I not want to roll my sleeves up and do some work in the mission of what Jesus has called me to do 
because my life isn't my own anymore. So this, what Jesus is calling us to do isn't what he demands, it's what we choose to do because we owe so much, we couldn't get out of it on our own. Aren't you glad that Jesus paid that lutron? That we're free because of that payment. We can be free.